Hey, Rarecast listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new program from Global Genes called Data DIY. Access to data is essential for advancing the understanding and treatment of rare diseases. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is to be as savvy about data as researchers and clinicians. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders how to become empowered data owners and stewards. If you'd like to learn more about the program, attend an upcoming Data DIY workshop, or view resources, go to globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. One of the reasons for the clinical failure of drugs is that animal models often fall short as predictors of how a drug will work in humans. Stomonics believes it can cut the time and cost of drug discovery with its microorgans that are engineered from human-induced pluripotent stem cells. These microorgans can be used for a high-throughput human drug screening without the need for drugs to enter a human subject. We spoke to Ping Ye. CEO of Stemonics, about the company's technology platform, how it works, and its recent agreement with the AI company Atomwise to discover and develop small molecule candidates to treat the rare neurological condition, Rett syndrome. Ping, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about drug discovery, Stemonics, and how technology is changing the discovery and development process. I'd like to start with your own experience as a patient, though. You were diagnosed with the rare blood cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma. You, you faced some treatment challenges. What happened? Well, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's about seven years ago, and uh, it had the classic form, so I don't know if it fell under the rare disease category, but... Uh, it was quite the experience, as you can imagine, when you go home and get diagnosed with any form of cancer. It's uh, quite the shock. And and uh, my path to recovery and becoming a survivor was not a very direct path. The first eight rounds of chemotherapy that I took uh, was not effective, and I got uh, a lot of the toxicity without much of the efficacy. And um, at that point, you know, my team medical team had to figure out, you know, what to do next. And we, we went to a more potent version of, of chemo that um, was very difficult on my body. And um, I recall, you know, some of the low points, you know, I'm, I'm even unable to have the energy to lift up my arm to feed myself. And um, that was, I would say, one of the low uh, physical and mental points. But I've been very lucky to come out of it, uh, going into remission after that, and then uh, and, and coming out with uh, today, seven years later, quite uh, feeling quite good. So it was, it was quite the journey. Well, how did this lead to the development of stomonics? Yeah, so, so stomonics was, you know, when you when you 
as many people who might be listening to this uh, podcast, uh, when you're going through treatment, uh, like like a cancer treatment, uh, there's there's a lot of times you're looking out the window, and because uh, you're feeling quite crummy, uh, you don't really want to move too much. So, uh, and then the only energy you have is to look out the window and think a little bit. And um, one of the thoughts that came into my head was, you know, there's got to be a way to test if drugs um, are safe and effective uh, on people before they actually go into the patient. And uh, is there a better way we can figure that out? And can we find medicines that are safer and more effective for 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 people? And and all those questions were were you know coming in and out of my thoughts and. I, I was wondering, given my background as a nanotechnologist, if there was a way I could help the effort in the life sciences industry, and and um, it, it started there. And um, and with my background in materials and semiconductor engineering technologies, um, you know, I wondered could this be used uh, in 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 the areas of biology and in what areas? Well, fast forward to learning about iPSCs or induced platelet stem cells, excuse me, and 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 their potential applications for converting those uh, stem cells into differentiated, uh, more more mature uh, cell types, and for the uses of drug discovery, that started to uh, resonate uh, with me and my co-founder, and and uh, that's kind of how it started. And we wondered, you know, what in those early days, what kinds of uh, what could we bring this to the table? What were the biggest challenges in using uh, these stem cell technologies? And 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 it basically came down to, um, in terms of uh, for for those doing drug discovery, could these be made consistently? Could they be made at a scale that uh, they could screen many many compounds, thousands of compounds? And could you have the functionality to to represent a more representative uh, model, something that mimicked more of what was in a human body. And so those are the three things that really jumped out to us. And in general, I would say not all of them uh, needed to be solved with more biology. <laughs> um, a lot of it had to be solved with manufacturing and engineering and, and process and, and those kinds of techniques, which uh, in, in my industry that I came from, uh, basically, was our expert was what we were really good at. Um, you know, we had to produce tens of millions of, of of devices that had accuracy needs of that were measured in nanometers, and and so that's how it started. How would you describe the problems of drug discovery and development today that stemonics can uniquely address? Well. The, there's there's quite a few challenges with with our industry. The first being that um, it's one of the few industries where the R&D efforts are becoming more inefficient. The costs of getting a drug to market um, is becoming more difficult. I think the current statistics that I'm seeing is one out of five thousand compounds actually get to approval, and so there's that's a very very uh, high uh, fail rate. And and so the way Stemonics addresses drug discovery uh, differently is by looking at the types of models 
uh, we can use to to do discovery in the in in what uh, people call you know the preclinical phase, and and how can we screen compounds out uh, faster and cheaper, but in a sense um, in a transformative way because we're not saying we have a new animal model. We're saying that after decades of work, um, animals haven't been that successful in finding uh, new new medicines, and so we're we're looking at it uh, quite a bit differently, um, and and applying this new uh, induced pluripotent stem cell differentiated um, what we call microorganisms as a way uh, to be different, and the fact that they're human and have human genetics and have high functionality is is how we are quite um, different and set us apart versus how drug discovery is traditionally done. What exactly does stomatics do and how does it do it? Well, you know, back in 2014, it was just a couple of years after uh, Dr. Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize uh, for induced pluripotent stem cells. So, what we do, uh, what we did was license that technology, which uh, companies have done, uh, but that's just the ante to play the game of, of induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, from there, uh, differentiating, there's a wide variety of ways of doing it, um, and we were able to bring on team members that were the first in the world to recapitulate a variety of rare diseases, uh, the first one being Rett syndrome which was done by one of our lead uh, neuroscientists. Um, but after you, you make mature uh, differentiated cells, one of the things that we did, uh, given that we listened to our customers, was how do you mature them uh, in, in ways that make them mimic what's happening in the human body better. So we actually don't just stop there, which pretty much everybody else in the world does, is we, we take these uh, developing and maturing Cells, and we start uh, bringing together in in a form of synthetic tissue, if you will, which we call microorganisms or microbrain, if you get specific to different uh, organ platforms that we have. And we age them. And as we age them, uh, some very interesting things happen. Um, the genetics change, uh, the functionality change, the overall structure of the tissue changes. And so these significant changes that happen over time as we age them through the development uh, basically open up new new ways uh, we can find uh, new medicines to uh, address some of these uh, diseases that we can make because uh, we not only make uh, a control or healthy version of each of our organ platforms, but we also have these uh, disease models. And, and in our case, some of the first disease models have been in in uh, rare diseases, and and uh, the way that works is the mutation of the patient uh, travels along our process and ends up, if you will, into the microorganisms that we make, and and those uh, microorganisms that we make from that particular patient have unique disease characteristics or phenotypes that are unique to that disease. It's almost like a fingerprint. And what demonics has become very good at over the last few years is we take these unique um, 
functional, what we call waveforms, because we're measuring the functionality of, of, of things like brains and, and hearts, um, and breaking them down using quite a bit of software, actually, and analytics. Um, some people call uh, AI, or I prefer calling it augmented intelligence, to break down these very complex biological waveforms uh, and and using that as a way to not only analyze the data, uh, but to find drugs that are safer and potentially more effective. And when I say effective to different disease models, we're looking at what we call rescue. And rescue is looking at this functional behavior and seeing how how back to normal can we get get it. And so that's that's what we do at Simonics, uh, broadly speaking. You've got the microbrain and the the micro heart assays. How well do they predict whether a drug will be safe? Yeah, that's a great question and a question uh, our customers asked years ago. And uh, what is often done with our customers is they have usually a set of of compounds that they know quite a bit about, uh, whether they've they've had a lot of animal testing on it or they've uh, gone through um, the FDA uh, clinical process, and so they have a lot of information. And so we often get um, bombarded with a group of compounds and are told, "Okay, test these and tell us which ones are which ones are safe," because they they give it to us in a blinded fashion, and uh, and so we uh, we apply uh, those compounds onto our onto our onto our microorgan platforms and. And off we go, and, and we suggest, okay, based on what our results are, this is uh, what we observe. And um, kind of fast-forwarding a little bit, uh, we have basically been validated to be uh, significantly better than animal testing uh, for, for example, neurotoxicity. So in, in a case uh, that I'll share um, at a high level, we were tested against uh, quite a few compounds, and and uh, they found that our prediction of specificity um, to be um, over 90%. Um, so specificity is a false negative. And, and in our industry, um, pharma companies really want to avoid a situation where a drug is safe but is, is uh, tested and showed to be unsafe. And they really want to avoid that. So... Having the high specificity is key, and so we were we've been able to be proven to have really high scores in specificity and sensitivity, and uh, there'll be a paper coming out I think over the next couple of months uh, with a with a top ten pharma on, on exactly that uh, validation study, and so that's how we get uh, validated and how we know uh, we're safe by comparing uh, drugs that uh, have uh, known toxicities and and we and we identify them. Are the tests at all predictive of efficacy? Yeah, so in that case, uh, that's actually why we did a screen earlier in uh, 2019 where we screened a library from the RET Foundation uh, on our disease model, and, and we were actually able to find, as I mentioned earlier, this concept of rescue, and uh, we were able to find rescue of uh, nearly a dozen compounds out of a library from the Rett Foundation, and that was 
that was pretty amazing because it, traditionally, you know, in situations where there are not good animal models or, or any animal models at all, we're able to come in and study, in, in your case, for example, a rare, rare disease uh, from, a, from a particular patient or group of patients and, uh, and, and do that testing to see how can we change the development of the biology over time to achieve rescue. Um, because a lot of uh, what our, our bread and butter are these de- neurodevelopmental diseases or developmental diseases, and it takes time uh, to create them. And it takes time to, uh, in a sense, rescue them as well because you have to change the biology to get the effect. And um, our approach seems to be useful in, in, in the area of efficacy as well. There are a number of other companies providing organ-on-a-chip technology and, and other similar approaches. Where does Stomotics fit into this world, and is there a point of differentiation? Yeah, that's, that's a um, very good question, and uh, there are quite a few differences. I, I mentioned a few of them earlier. Um, consistency, scalability, um, and this idea of being able to accelerate the age or maturity to achieve more biological accuracy and functionality. I think one of the differences um, about stomonics is this idea um, around functionality, and and we've been able to really execute on that uh, concept and and the ability to make highly functioning uh, microorgans, and is one of the things that really sets us apart. Um, the second would be the fact that we're able to ship our products around the world and um, at room temperature, which allows us to get our products uh, to anyone really in the world. So that's that's actually quite unique. And then uh, the third um, that's really come out the last uh, year uh, or so is the ability to uh, really apply a lot of uh, software analytics and, and AI t- to the resulting data from all this functional, all, all our functional microorganisms and, and the ability to analyze this, I'll call it, uh, this uh, biologically uh, tuned uh, data. I mean, we, we take a lot of the software and we look at, uh, we, we train it, um, and we analyze uh, the functional data that comes from our microorganisms. That that is that's something that uh, this convergence that we've been able to lead on is, is quite unique, and it's one of the struggles actually of uh, of AI drug discovery companies um, because after a while, after recommendations are made, um, there's still a step uh, where you have to. Uh, test those recommendations or to validate those recommendations. And if you're still based um, your recommendations solely on animal models that haven't really worked over the last uh, few decades, uh, you're, you're still potentially not getting to uh, not just the right answer, but medicines to patients uh, that are in need of them. How consistent are the microorganisms you produce? Well, Drugs tested in them perform consistently from microorgan batch to microorgan batch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's what we've we've been focusing on the last 
in a few years is the ability to achieve that. And um, you know, our coefficient of variability uh, is um, 10% or, lo- or lower uh, traditionally on, on the screens that we do. So there's very little um, variability and and it's that consistency well to well, or as you said, microorgan to microorgan, plate to plate, batch to batch. You know that's that's why we have a whole you know teams of people to make sure that that consistency is there. Um, because in the end, you know our customers, once they identify a particular uh, disease line that they want to study. Uh, they don't just have one drug to screen. They have thousands, hundreds of thousands of compounds to screen. So our ability to be a screenable platform is is also one of the things that differentiates us. I, I want to talk about your recent agreement with AtomWise to use your microorgan technology with AtomWise's AI technology to discover and develop small molecule candidates to treat the neurological condition Rett syndrome. How does this collaboration work? Yeah, I think that's really exciting um, new development for us. This joint venture is is really combining these two two worlds of of AI and, and specifically their structure based approach to drug design and um, you know their ability to screen billions of compounds and and to figure out you know what chemical structures may work for the targets that we're looking at. Um, and then take those recommendations and actually test in a human human model, you know, one that has human genetics, um, the right functionality, and the consistency to actually get uh, useful data and information is really exciting. So we take the recommendations and and uh, we'll screen those and iterate uh, on those results in terms of what we find is as as, as hits. In our human models, and then um, iterate to the point where we feel that uh, there is a, an optimized, uh, effective, and safe compound to go uh, be synthesized. And at that point, um, we will uh, synthesize uh, those compounds or work with the dozens of pharmaceutical companies that we work with to go synthesize that. While your technology is not disease-specific, is there something about it that makes it particularly attractive to rare disease drug developers? Yeah, I think the ability to take anyone's uh, anyone's uh, biopsy of blood or skin or um, any kind of sample from a particular patient, I mean, it could even be a, a, a tooth that falls out of a child and and, and the dental pulp is taken out uh, to be converted into inducatory potent stem cells. I think the ability to get samples from from practically anyone is an attractive uh, way to uh, mimic or recapitulate um, a person's um, disease onto one of our plates, and um, I think that's that's uh, that ability to mimic even. The rarest of diseases is something that's um, uh, quite attractive. Does that suggest the potential to do individual patient screens to either repurpose drugs for a particular patient's disease or to screen available drugs to find the optimal treatment for a condition? 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think there is anything technical um, in the way of doing just that, and I think that's that's kind of um, um, one of the exciting things of of what we're working on is the ability to um, eventually get into that uh, into that uh, into that space. There have been a number of technologies like this that are being embraced by drug developers that promise to create savings of time and money. But if you look at the industry statistics, there's little evidence that we've seen a drop in the cost of drug development. Where's the payoff from these technologies? Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, I think um, the the industry is, Definitely under significant pressure from 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 patients and, and people who speak on patients' behalf to uh, all, to address you know the prices of drugs and 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 so I think that pressure will always uh, be there and I think it's only going to ramp up and so um, you know, I think that our ability to give the options to the pharma companies. To reduce their costs of R&D, uh, will give them the opportunity to really lower um, that burden on them. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, for 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 this whole industry, the R&D uh, efforts uh, have really been more inefficient over time. So, you know, those are the pressures that they're feeling. Is you know, getting medicines to treat patients is getting harder and harder. And is there a way to do it um, not just a little bit better, but transformatively better in, in, a, in a way that is almost a paradigm shift of what's been done before? And I think, you know, we're offering a whole new way of trying to solve this problem. Um, and, you know, I kind of give the example that sometimes it, it feels that, you know, if, if you're constantly pushing on a door that says pull, uh, maybe maybe you should pull out the door and, and do it differently. I think that um, you know for a long time we've been using animals, and uh, now we have an opportunity to have not just human these these human models, but something that's highly scalable, highly consistent, um, genetically um, similar to actual human beings, and um, and highly functional. And, and I think um, that's that's something that um, could give the whole industry an opportunity to relieve some of the pressure that is being felt by ineffective um, or inefficient uh, R&D efforts and, and um, share those um, improvements uh, to patients that are paying for those medicines. Ping yeah, CEO of Stomonics. Ping, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. 
We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.